Chris Meredith joins us right now, Senior Portfolio Manager at uh, OSAM, uh, to talk about uh, investing and active investing. Uh, so much uh, a focus on, on a passive investor that makes people who are aspiring stock pickers like me crazy. Um, and yet, uh, uh, there, there's, it's hard to get away from this great argument that, that what Warren Buffett put it as cleanly as, as plainly as anyone, active stock picker Warren Buffett, that indexing, because the fees are so low, can work out so great for investors. I would say that indexing can work out great for investors if they're uh, basically individual investors that aren't committed to a process and don't have the right perspective on what they need to do in order to be a successful investor. At O'Shaughnessy, we spent a lot of time thinking through how to build successful investment strategies. And we've spent a lot of time realizing that a key aspect of this is educating people on how to build a successful investment strategy, not just using our strategies, but having the discipline themselves to go through and be a long-term investor. Yeah, Jim O'Shaughnessy has spent some time you know, with us kind of explaining your methodology. Um, talk to us a little bit about uh, the kind of key metrics that you guys focus on. Sure. I mean, the, the metrics are one thing on the data points that we look at. Really, Jim's been doing a lot of work recently with some posts at our website, osam.com, and some blog topics. Really, he's been talking a lot more about the mental perspective of mm -hmm. people need to have long, to be a long-term investor. Um, there's obviously a portion of us where we are not traders. We're not looking at short-term, you know, got to hunch by a bunch and, and, and do one trade to try to, try to make a, you know, a, a double or a triple along the way. We build strategies for long-term where we're looking for people with investment objectives over decades. And what you want to do is once you have that perspective of being an investor, then it's about building a process. I also uh, teach at Cornell and with students, and it's the very first thing I say in the first day of class of being a successful investor is you have to separate your process from the results. And the idea is that when you're teaching students and they have a, a program where they're running money, they have essentially nine months with me where they're learning right. how to do this. And the idea is you build a successful process, but over a nine month period- But nothing's ever successful 100% of the time. So when exactly. do you determine that the process that you've got in place after what, what, what chunk of time that you say, well, wait a minute, this process has got to change a little bit? We, we give a very long period of time because you can wind up being successful. The average successful investor is right on a quarterly basis, probably about six out of 10 times, which means 40% of the time you're looking at yourself, Amir, and saying, this quarter didn't work. It's a really challenging perspective to have where your quarter, you're behind. Well, I mean, geez, I mean, when I was on a buy side, you, 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 you try to talk about short selling with someone who didn't short stocks. Yes. And when even among us who did, I worked at a short only fund for a while and, and ran you know, a big chunk of money there. And, and we, you talk to someone who didn't short stocks, they say, well, what's your timing on this? Well, I don't know what it's like. I've got a notion, right? but it's going to be wrong. The stock's going to go up before it goes down. I don't know the last day the stock's going to be up. It's not worth what it's supposed to be today, so it should start going down any second now, but probably won't. Which is the important part about building a process. At our firm, what we do is we build quantitative strategies and take emotion out of the process. The hard part is if you're going through and you're working through your brain and through all the emotions that were hardwired to make reactions at the wrong times, you can wind up having difficulty. Hence why... Passive investing does work for some people that don't have that long-term well, perspective or yeah, discipline. Because I, I know kind of our tease into this was how uh, the mad rush by investors into passive products is an opportunity for active investors. But, you know, active investors can get thrown by their emotions absolutely, and make bad decisions at the wrong time. So why not continue the, the kind of stay with the passive mode where you kind of take hopefully emotions out of it? Because you're giving up the opportunity for upside, right? You have the ability to and outperform. Down, yeah, but you're also maybe protecting yourself on the downside. What you're doing is you're basically setting your bar and saying that I'm going to get market level returns, right? And you're saying if I'm going to try to build an allocation for myself, 
I'm going to sit there and have my equity fixed income. And that'll be the only lever you have to meet your investment goals. The part is if you can go through and build an active strategy within that allocation and you have successful tools or you can hire somebody who has the successful tools, you can wind up adding to that overall performance. The Yale Endowment is a good example of that where they generated 5% excess return. Half their excess return basically came from that manager selection component and half of it came from the asset allocation. If they had only gone with the allocation, and gone passive with the rest, they would have given up half their upside. I'm playing with you a little bit, but you know, you bring up the endowments. A lot of university endowments have had a tough time actively making investment choices. Recently, it's been a tough, challenging environment for active Several investing years, overall. Yeah. Yes, but that's if you look at the long-term data, there have been longer, there have been long periods of times where active management has struggled. You look at the 98-99 time frame. Looking at this now, where it's a long period of time, but it is not one that's out of the norm for the longer cycle of when active management has worked and has not worked. It, it's interesting, too, that I, I think it's really sort of about the quality of the managers. I mean, I'm not saying because Yale, Yale put some money in my firm, uh, the firm that I worked at as well, but but it really is about the quality of the managers. And, and, and the average return from a hedge fund, the average return to investor isn't good because they're average. Uh, but the the better ones, and everyone thinks they're doing that when they're picking a stock. They think they're picking a better stock. They think they're picking a better uh, a mutual fund. They think they're picking a better hedge fund. They think they're picking a better sector for their, their ETF or their index, but they're not. The parts for us is that the important thing for us is if you have a process, right, where you're going to the bottom and you're saying, how are you building these and having a repeatable methodology for identifying investments, do we think you have a better better idea of how you're going to build a portfolio than if you're sitting there and trying to identify trends every time through? If you're trying to keep on top of the market and say, you know, I think right now it's going to be this type of style that will work or at this time mm-hmm. this style will work, that is less successful than having one style overall and keeping to You it. guys are buy and hold yes. for a while. I'm just curious, uh, in the recent environment, uh, any changes, though, that you have potentially made, it to some, made to some of your positions? We're always looking to improve on our strategies, and our positions will rotate through based on characteristics. But the philosophies are the same ones that Jim started with back in 1996 when he wrote What Works on Wall Street. And it's mm-hmm. identifying stocks based on characteristics like valuation, momentum and yield. And those are still the same bedrock principles we use today. Hard to, though, ignore kind of some the momentum, though, that we see in just kind of the broader market, again, going back to the index. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's one where the index has proven active management wrong for now five out of the last six years, right? So it's been a, a challenging environment. But again, not one that makes us sit there and say we should give up the, on the idea of active management in total. So how's your last year been? Been good. Yeah? yeah we're on. actually- Define good? Good. Uh, our large value strategy is outperforming six and a half, almost seven percent year to date. Um, we've had a strong rally in the last twelve months, and we've been we've been doing fine. So let's get to that process a little bit. Describe part, the key component of the tough, some of the tough decisions you've made in that process. Yeah. So the, our large value strategy is one that identifies companies based on the return of capital, and it's the idea that the shareholder yield, where return you're looking, of invested capital, uh, return of capital through dividends and share repurchases. Okay. Right. So share repurchases really that. Yeah. I, I have a hard time seeing that, that adding value. I have a hard time getting my head around that idea. The idea is that these are companies that are making strong capital reinvestment within their own companies, but they have excess capital out there and they're giving it back to shareholders. It's actually- But is it really giving it back to shareholders? Uh, it is, if through the, the, the repurchase of shares. It's in methodology where they're recouping the shares that are out of the market oh, and consolidates it. it and goes through. But the example I'll give is Boeing, right? Boeing has gone through and in the last three years, it's generated 32 billion in operating cash flow. It's taken 20 billion of that and done it on share repurchases. Now that's a portion where what it happens is on the, it embeds a secondary growth rate inside of the stock. So where it's been where the even though the sales have been flat, they've improved right. a little bit on their operating margin, but they've gone through and had their EPS grow from uh, six six point seven up to eleven point four essentially. So eleven dollars thirty eight cents. But uh, but what, you, you've said, but that's also a company that sees sales 
had been up down 2% last year. Yeah. But I look at other companies like IBM that have borrowed money to fuel, uh, to, to pay for a lot of share reacquisition. Buybacks, yeah. Earnings per share is going up. The business is shrinking massively. There's uh, a, I know that the stock's done well in the last year. It's done terribly over the last previous year, few years. There's some portions of these that are going to be contrarian. But the important part for our strategy, again, is it's we're identifying the characteristics we're using to, to build portfolios. We also believe that building you build investment strategies on probabilities. Right. The idea is that we are sitting there and saying that on average, these stocks are going to outperform more than not. And it's one that's built a successful so, track record over so time. So would your strategy then also buy some IBM, even though the company's doing poorly? Or is there, is there something else that screens out a company like IBM okay. where it's got it's got shrinking revenue, shrinking operating profits, but but uh, decreasing, uh, but also a shrinking share yeah. count? Our overall process takes in other characteristics as well to try to go through and identify So what's companies. the one that, that corrects for the mistake I'm pointing out? Or earnings growth is one that we look at to see precipitous declines in earnings, poor return on invested capital. So net income, not just earnings per share? Correct. And that's when we're looking at also, uh, we have financial strength to look at the leverage on the balance sheet, the direction that it's headed in, the quality of the earnings to check the representation of the how a company is presenting itself and whether so, it's conservative uh, uh, or aggressive. Uh, quality of earnings meaning what? Um, uh, well, an, tell, tell, me a, tell me what a bad earnings quality looks like compared to a good earnings quality. Uh, if its net income is higher than its cash flow and you're winding up right. seeing it Thank where you. it's, <laughs> that's one that would be a poor poor quality of earnings because it's basically boosting its earnings through accounting choices. And we, and we see that a lot. You can see that. It's about 15% of the companies out there. We're going to leave it there. Fun conversation. Thank you so much. Say hi to Jim. Will do. Chris Meredith, Head of Research and Senior Portfolio Manager at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, roughly $6 billion in assets under management, based in Stanford, Connecticut, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio.